Welcome back to another episode of The Den Tapes, a podcast dedicated to the reading of horror fiction. I'm your host, Tony. Get comfy, settle in, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie-jeebies. This week's episode will contain some content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's story is called Crimson Cloud. The Crimson Cloud lingered over the bend in the Alcorn River where the Weston textile mill stood. Well, it, when it, it barely stood there, it was mostly used in my younger days for a place to drink and smoke weed. Or, you know, sometimes in the winter, it was a place the less fortunate could take shelter from the cold. Old Crimson Hazy, as we called her. Man, it was in that same spot for a little over three years. Right up until we all went off to college, actually. We shot everything but the kitchen sink into that thing. Footballs, you remember those foam planes that you could get at the dollar store? A few kites. But everything would just fall from the sky like nothing was there. Oh, by we, I mean Carl, Thomas, Pauline, and Jenny, plus myself. Thomas bought a drone with saved up birthday money that first summer after we found Old Crimson Hazy. We flew that thing through there, God, had to have been a hundred thousand times and nothing. From what we could tell, it was just some stagnant cloud, but, you know, like deep red in color. It had this dark spot in the middle that everything else rotated around. It swirled like a cloud should, but it never moved like east or west into the trees, nor did it go up or down the river, north or south. Hell, it never even went up or down in elevation. The thing was only about 40 feet up in the air as it was, is about the size of one of those trucks that stocks the Mini Mart with hers and pop. I think that's why, you know, the government was never in there shutting down the woods or why you never saw any videos of it all over TikTok. The trees there, they grow pretty damn tall. We figured it was probably not sticking out above the hilltops because, you know, if it had, those woods would have been riddled with thrill seekers, scientists, military. The only other explanation we had come up with was that maybe we were the only ones that could see the damn thing. Perhaps the crimson cloud was all ours. I mean, maybe it's been hours since the day it showed up because, you know, we were the first ones to see it. I mean, sure seems like it. Because, you know, in the summer, that place is where you come to swim in the river if you live in Weston or the surrounding countryside. Kids ride their bikes for miles just to jump off the stern wheel on the mill into the deepest part of the Elkhorn. People canoe or kayak down the river through all hours of the day, but no one else saw that cloud but us. Like it had chose us as some backwoods prophet spilling lore about it. Another theory that Jenny had come up with was that we all died in the mill, you know, smoking weed and drinking beers and stuff. She jokingly suggested that 
you know, the old red hazy was our portal into whatever place we were supposed to go to after death. But, you know, we all went home to our parents and we led fairly normal lives. Our boring, uncomplicated lives. That's probably why the Crimson Cloud was so important to the five of us. It provided a little extra spark to existence, a bit of zing and pep we all craved, some mesmerizing red steam off the river to break the mundanity of small town life. We would make up all kinds of excuses to go out to the mill and gaze up at that see-through maze of red. Actually, a few weeks before we all went our separate ways, Jenny to New York, Carl to Cleveland, Thomas went out to Cincinnati, and Pauline and I, we ended up in Denver. Uh, Thomas and I got so mad at the other three for going out there without us that we, uh, we set off firecrackers in the tree line behind the mill to scare the bejesus out of them. And that's when we saw the cloud move for the first time. It didn't sway in any direction. It didn't pulse or anything. It just, it just squelched like an upset stomach when the smoke from the firecrackers rose into the air and got close to it. And you know that thing when someone pukes, how it also makes you want to puke? Imagine that sound being so loud that it vibrates your whole body, even deep down into your stomach. That whole sound had us hurling our lunches onto the ground all over that riverbank. After we wiped our mouths clean and caught our breath, I saw the dimmest of a light about the size of a basketball swirling inside the cloud, kind of like orbiting the darker part in the middle. I said, hey, look, you guys see that? I yelled at him, you know? I was pointing and walking towards the riverbank. Pauline grabbed me by the arm and pulled me back. Her eyes were down on the river, not up at the cloud, and she was like, hey, don't get too close. Look at that. She almost whispered it, but she had like this shock to her voice. It was because the water, it was thrashing around, spinning in a circle like a sinkhole had opened up just below the surface somewhere. We stood there and kind of just watched it for a little while and Carl suggested Thomas get the drone up in the air. Man, he tore ass back to his bag. He pulled out the little machine and his tablet and up into the cloud it went. Well, when it got up there, the orb got brighter as the drone got closer. And I swear to you, it looked like a damn hand came out of that light and swatted the drone out of the sky like it was nothing more than a mosquito. It came crashing down into the water, swallowed up by the whirlpool. We all stood there, couldn't move for the life of us, thinking that, you know, some monster was about to break loose from the middle of old Crimson Hazy and, you know, devour us or something. But, you know, that didn't happen. Everything kind of just went back to normal. You know, just the five of us on the riverbank, hanging out, kids having fun. Thomas spent the remainder of the day arguing with Carl about how he should pay for the drone since it was, you know, his idea to get it up in the air. We decided that we were going to camp out on the river that night. We couldn't pull ourselves away from old Crimson Hazy now that we had seen her come alive, you know. 
Mostly, fear drove us that night not to sleep, just in case a monster did burst out of the fog, but, you know, we just sat there, hovering next to the fire we had built. None of us would claim that we were scared, but, you know, we didn't want the others knowing we were scared shitless for whatever could happen next, what could ever come out of that cloud, you know? Also, I think it had to do a little bit with, you know, none of us wanting to admit that we were not quite that ready to say goodbye to each other, to wander off to different seas to begin the next chapters of our lives. The only thing that happened that night worth any merit of memory for me was when Pauline put her hand on my thigh and began head nodding towards the mill, whispering in my ear, I bet if we're quiet, they won't even know we're gone. You know, and us sneaking off and then coming back and them just laughing their asses off at us. They knew what we were doing over there. See, Pauline and I had been dating for a few months at that point, but everybody in the group knew we had been in love for a lot longer than that. That's probably why Carl and Thomas fought over Jenny all the time. They kind of knew Pauline and I would end up together. But, you know, Jenny would always roll her eyes and tell them that neither of them had a chance. Well, you know, we found out in our 20s exactly how little of a chance each of them had had. Uh, We met Marta, Jenny's soon-to-be wife, on a visit back to Weston for 4th of July in 2019. Oh, Crimson Hazy dissipated that day, the day we all said goodbye to each other. I'll never forget it. We were all so mad about somebody else finding it after we left. You know, that we would all leave town and some shithead like, you know, Jackson Robertson, Jackrabbit, we called him, would take possession of our cherished cloud and mouth off to the whole county about it. But the thing is, is as we stood there, you know, Pauline put her head on my shoulder, resting it there. Jenny had Thomas and Carl under each of her arms. You know, we didn't find ourselves worried that we would never see each other again. It was all about not seeing old Hazy for the rest of our lives. And I swear, as the thought crossed each of our minds, there she went, like a reverse tornado up and into the sky. It looked like it was swallowed up by the moon. And you know, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't shed a few tears. I think, I think we all did. Thomas joked with wet eyes about how the crimson cloud had brought us all closer together as friends. I'll tell you what, it wasn't until the summer of 2028 that we all understood just how close that damn cloud had brought us. In 2022, Pauline and I moved back to Weston. We found ourselves pretty self-sufficient in each of our fields and wanted to return home to be close to our parents. Hers were north by 20 minutes, and mine were still in the house where Pauline and I first encountered each other on a physical level, while mom and dad were out hawking tomatoes at the farmer's market. We scored a two-story fixer-upper, just a few minutes from the old mill, actually, complete with a couple acres and a standalone garage. We also bought a small bungalow complete with a mother-in-law's above garage apartment that we set up on the Airbnb app. You know, 2022 turned out to be a pretty good banner year for us. That was also the year we each started getting the headaches, though. And not just Pauline and I. 
Thomas, Carl, and Jenny, too. The first one I got, man, it brought me to my knees. I was hanging fresh drywall in a room that was soon to become Pauline's office. Kneeling, handshaking as I brought them to my face, I was sure I was having an aneurysm or something and I would be dead in a few minutes. And every time I closed my eyes, I was, you know, I was brought right back to the riverbank, staring up at the cloud, laughing, gawking, splashing in the river with the other four. Except the weirdest part about it was it was from old Crimson Hazy's point of view, like I was looking down upon myself and the others. I kept that to myself as I stood and, you know, I tried, I was like, all right, I'm going to keep this a secret until I found Pauline buckled over in the kitchen. She told me what she had seen during her migraine from hell and my face gave away my secret because she said, while struggling through the pain, oh my God, you saw it too, didn't you? You saw the same thing. When Thomas's mother got her diagnosis in early 2027, lung cancer, it was really hard to hear. He made the necessary arrangements and moved back to Weston as well. We met him at Merle's Diner the morning after he got all settled in, and that's when he told us that he had been experiencing the brain hazes as well. That's the nickname we came up with after Jenny and Carl reached out and told us they had been experiencing them too. It was a strange thing, all of us having these wild, wild headaches with these visions of us, you know, younger. So the five of us decided to get together shortly after that. Pauline and I put Jenny and Marta up in the Airbnb with Carl in the garage apartment, free of charge, of course. There it was, summer of 2028, seeing us all back together again. When everybody settled in, and after we had polished off some Geno's pizza, we each explained in painful detail exactly what we had seen during these brain hazes. Jenny started things off telling us that her first one struck on November 8th, 2022. We all looked at each other with just shock, complete, complete dismay in our eyes. I asked her, hey, what time? And everyone in the circle at the table whispered, 2.18, as Jenny said it out loud, 2.18 p.m. Everyone's vision in the haze was from the cloud's perspective as well, except for Carl's. Man, mine is like I'm drowning, like I'm under the water, like I'm in the river. And it's like pulling me under, and I'm like, I'm not really struggling but I'm trying to get to you guys. It's super weird, he said, as we all listened in intently. Everybody fell quiet for a minute, contemplating what these brain hazes could mean, and I blurted out, man, should we just go out there? You know, thinking back on it, seeing as we were only a few minutes away from the mill, I assumed it was the best idea, you know? Maybe... Maybe we can find out, you know, something about this. Maybe something's out there. Maybe there's a memory we're all trying to unlock, I said. It was warm out that day, really warm. Highest instance of Appalachian summer heat. That muggy humidity that hits right before the temperatures skyrocket into the 90s. But you could feel the excitement 
the eagerness we all had, the hope that maybe when we got out there, the crimson cloud would be there. We felt like we were all in our late teens again. But as we passed the mill, the sternwell just kind of stagnant in place, the water was calm, birds chirping, awaiting the pink splash of dusk. There was no sign of that red cloud. I mean, none of us were really sure what we expected to see out there. But when the sun began to creep behind the hillside, we decided it was time to stop kicking at rocks on the ground and call it a night. Uh, lying down later on, Pauline rested her head on my chest and expressed how great it was to have the gang back together. And I agreed with her. It felt really nice having everybody in town, you know, feeling young at heart again. At 4.31 a.m., we both shot up, the pain piercing the inside of our heads like a balloon expanding and exploding just over and over and over and over again. The group text fired up a few minutes later. All five of us had experienced that late-night brain haze. I don't think any of us went back to sleep. I mean, it showed on our faces, the bags under our eyes, the puttering of small yawns and all the sighs throughout breakfast at Merle's the next morning. Did everyone see the same thing? Pauline had asked. I looked at Carl. Hey, were you still under the water? Everyone nodded, and in unison we all said, but we weren't young anymore. It looked like all of us like right now. Pauline continued and said, wait, in mine there were six of us. Were there six of you in your guys' too? Jenny nodded lightly and put her arm around Marta and mumbled, You were in this one. It was really weird. You've never been in any of them before. Marta sighed, not knowing how to console Jenny, but began rubbing a hand on her back. That's when we heard the TV behind the counter cut into a breaking news report, and everyone in the diner gasped. and fear in our minds that we have confirmed the extremist group, the Aligned Patriots, numbering in the hundreds of thousands, have descended upon the state. They are militarily conquering towns with deadly force and the releasing of chemical agents. They have posted a statement via social media saying they are out to set the country straight with the mission of annihilating any opposition. The U.S. military has advised most of the population to head west towards St. Louis or Chicago. Good luck and Godspeed. Dottie, the owner, announced the diner was obviously closing down. And when the time came, everyone could just square up with her when she reopened. She placed stacks of to-go boxes and bags on the counter and gave us all like 15 minutes to get out of there. Whew, and it was mayhem. We opted not to take our food to go, bypassing the doggy bags and heading straight back to our Airbnb property where the others had been staying. Thomas was the first one out the door and he yelled, I'm gonna go check on mom, I'm gonna go see her first, as he climbed into his car. While the others packed at the Airbnb, Pauline and I raced home and threw together what we could, a rolling suitcase and a few duffel bags. 
I grabbed my old hunting rifle and some ammo. When Pauline met me at the car, this sheer look of worry took over her face. Her eyes were affixed on the gun. I really hope we don't need that, she said with a shaky voice. I pulled my phone out to call Thomas, who was trying to figure out what the hospital was going to be doing to secure his mother's safety. There was no answer. I took notice of the time. It was 1.47 p.m. Then I called Jenny immediately after. Hey, uh, let's meet at the mill. It's on the outskirts of town. I think it's a great idea. It's well off the main roads. I will text Thomas and let him know that's where we're going to be meeting, I said to her when she answered. I have never driven with such reckless abandon. The others had made it safely to the mill. Our cars parked above the bank, tucked up against the mill itself, shielding them from the road that was about 600 feet or so to the north. Before we could formulate our plan, the first boom from town pulsed through the air, echoing up the river. It was 2.18 p.m. The exact time we all experienced our first brain haze back in November of 2022. We all looked at each other in amazement. Did old Crimson Hazy warn us about this? That was, you know, the question we all wanted to ask, but dared not mutter the words aloud. Out on the road, we heard large trucks, the sound of a caravan just rumbling on. Jesus, Jesus, get down, get down, Jenny softly commanded. We ducked at the sides of our cars, falling on our asses, sitting there with our backs against the doors. And Marna pointed out, man, fuck, I hope Thomas makes it here. The legion of trucks were blaring America the Beautiful from some sort of amplifier with a message over top stating, Comply and you will not be hurt. Comply and you will not be hurt. I took a peek up over the hood and saw the parade of lifted trucks, vans, converted old UPS delivery vehicles, and muscle cars keeping a steady pace out on the road. Ah, they're not stopping, so that's a good sign, I whispered to the others. From the south side, we heard a smaller vehicle, something like a motorcycle or a four-wheeler, making its way to us through the woods but up along the river. We all looked at each other scared. Maybe they were trying to flush us out. We didn't know what was going on, so I readied the rifle and I got down on my belly, pulling three rocks together to steady the barrel. I'll never forget, I thought to myself, man, that's a fucking Flintstones tripod, isn't it? Through the scope, I saw the oncomer. I eased my finger onto the trigger, shaking like I was a boy again, about to do it for the first time with Pauline. Man, if he finds us, we're toast. We'll be considered defectors or something like that. They will hang us in Market Square right outside of the old Stone and Thomas department store, Pauline whined. I took a deep breath and fought the urge to put the gun down, the trigger against the inside of my finger firming my grip. And right as I fired, the man on the four-wheeler came into sight. He waved. It was Thomas. But the gun had reported loud through the trees. I pulled the trigger as soon as I got a fix on him. A flock of black warblers erupted from the trees above us. Thomas fell from the four-wheeler, sending it into a tree. You got him, you got him, you got him, Jenny exclaimed. 
I turned to them with what must have been a look of sheer terror on my face, and I said, uh, uh, that was Thomas? But Carl, he shook his head. No, he, he can't be dead. That last brain haze we had, we were all there, remember? As we are right now. The confidence in his tone was slightly reassuring, but I couldn't shake the feeling I had just killed my friend. And at that moment, Thomas's voice rang through the trees. Hey, don't shoot, don't shoot, it's me. We all rushed to him, immediately scrambling down the riverbank. Oh my God, dude, did I hit you? I asked with fear, causing my voice to break a little bit. Thomas chuckled, which, you know, surprised us all and said, come on, man, have you ever been a good shot? No, I dove off the thing when I heard you shoot. You know, I felt his back crack from the massive hug I gave him right after he told me that. Hopefully that militia didn't hear the gunshot, Marta pointed out. That's when Thomas grunted, oh man, they are all over town. They're setting up roadblocks, grouping people into like opposers and joiners. It's really fucking weird. It's really scary. And it doesn't look like they're going to be leaving anytime soon. I had to steal Jackrabbit's four-wheeler and came up the river to find you guys so they didn't see me. Well, maybe we just get comfortable and stay the night out here. We've done it a thousand times. We did it when we were kids, remember? Maybe we just wait it out, Jenny offered up. Pauline rested her head on my shoulder. I wrapped my arm around her and gave her a kiss on the top of the head, firmly saying, Yeah, that's a good idea. I packed a few tents, actually. Carl interrupted me and said, I grabbed some camping supplies from the garage at the Airbnb, too. Pauline and I stored some there in case renters, you know, had some backyard campers in the form of children when they stayed there. He finished up by saying, I grabbed a couple things to make for a meal, too. We set up camp quickly after waiting for about an hour to see if the horde of homegrown terrorists had heard the shot that I took at Thomas. You know, when it was clear that we were safe, Pauline and I built a fire while the others pitched tents and Carl got some dinner together. He cooked it over the fire. It was actually really nice. We sat and told Marta all about the Crimson Cloud, spinning stories of our far gone youth. The night wavered into the early hours of morning as we all waxed nostalgic. And for as scared as we should have been, it sure did feel like we were right back where we had been when we started all these friendships. Just a group of friends together in the woods, wasting time away in amazement of that odd floating red specter. And the only one missing was old Crimson Hazy herself. I pointed it out and, you know, we all felt quiet. But then a soft wind raced through the trees and a hum grew from above us. And as if we had just summoned some spirit with a Ouija board out of the dusk sky, swirled our old friend. As we all looked up, Marta was just so fucking stunned that she didn't realize that each of us had keeled over from what would end up being our final brain haze. What we all saw in that flash was an instance of whichever mother figure was singular to each of us. I saw the time when I was nine years old, my mother 
pulled me up and threw me over her shoulder, protecting me from a charging dog. Carl saw this check his mother had written to him to cover the traveling costs for his big job interview after college. Pauline saw her mother giving her the no man is worth heartbreak speech right before our wedding. Each one of us saw an instance of our mothers protecting us, and we knew the crimson cloud had returned to do the same. A thundering bang rattled through the air. Oh my God, was that a bomb? Pauline spit out in fear. Wait, didn't they say on the news those guys were using chemicals, like nerve gas or something? What if that was... Thomas stopped talking and gawked at the faint mushroom cloud no more than three miles away from us. Oh, if that is nerve gas, we're fucking toast, Jenny yelled, grabbing at Marta to run back to the cars. We all rushed in tow behind them, but that's when we heard Carl yell, What the fuck is that? We turned to see him pointing and walking towards the river. The water began to swirl, much like it had that day when we set off the firecrackers. The cloud shifted, shooting down like a star out of the sky, quickly engulfing Carl. It looked as if it had tossed him into the river. We rushed over and watched as he got pulled down under the water, but the weird thing is, is he wasn't struggling. Oh my God, it's our visions playing out. Pauline whispered, holding up her phone. The time read 4.31 a.m. The cloud swirled like some angelic being, fogging around each one of us. One by one, we tumbled into the whirlpool. And right as I thought I was going to drown, you know, I had the thought that maybe old Hazy was a malevolent occurrence, something so astonishing happened. I closed my eyes, and then all of us were standing in Millennium Park, staring up at that weird big glass bean, the fog of red disappearing in the reflection. Crimson Cloud had somehow teleported us to safety. Like, you know, my mom did with the dog. Old Hazy whisked us out of harm's way and into a windy rainstorm in the heart of Chicago. As military personnel swarmed us with questions of where we had traveled from, we just found ourselves completely speechless. No one had seen us appear out of thin air, just like those kayakers had never seen the red cloud when we pointed it out. And it was, it was pouring the rain, pelting us with drops the size of grapefruits. So all of us being soaked from the river was never questioned. We were escorted away and given a block of hotel rooms for safekeeping. Four days we were there. That's how long it took for the aligned patriots to be defeated and for us to return to Weston. The first thing we did when we got back to town was go to Merle's and settle our tabs with Dottie. She told us that the homegrown terrorist had indeed set off a bomb releasing nerve gas into the air. Luckily, she has a bomb shelter at her place. She also commended us for getting to Chicago so quickly when we told her where we had been. We all just kind of smirked at each other, having no idea how to explain that old Crimsy had gotten us out there safely. Over a few days, we fell back into our routines. Marta and Jenny returned home. Carl, Pauline, and I 
aided Thomas in the funeral arrangements for his mother, who passed away shortly after. Thomas was able to hold her hand, and she told him that she was very proud of him in the moment that she slipped off into the beyond. It's a face I will never forget. Actually, both of their faces, hers at peace, but Thomas's having this loving, loss-filled pain. It prepared me being there with him when she died as I was to endeavor my own preparation for loss. The clock ticked on, the pages of the calendar fell lifelessly into the beyond, time passing by so eloquently like it had on that riverside just downstream from the Weston textile mill. Me and my friends being pulled together by that red spectacle in the air just above the river. Years later, with all of us in our late 40s, we found ourselves together once again. I don't think I've ever cried as much as I did the afternoon the oncologist told us Pauline was terminal. My face squished together in a just a hot, wet mess. Hers, however, was as stern as it had ever been in any argument we'd ever had. When the doctor left the room, she told me, no matter what it takes, get the gang back together and take me to the river. I had no second thought to her request. I contacted the others and everyone made their way back to our tiny little town to be there for my dear wife. You know, piggyback rides are a thing of memory. One of those jostling mental images bringing back the joyous times of childhood. But that night, that equally devastating and promising evening, as daylight fed into the pink haze of Sailor's Delight, a piggyback ride was a defining detail. I hiked my wife up, her arms around my neck, her legs dangling at my side, her frail body bouncing lightly against my shoulders, back and waistline. We were surrounded by our friends, the friends we had began this entire journey with. We gathered on that riverbank, and just like we had before in our collective darkest hour, we called out to the crimson cloud, and our adopted ethereal mother came to us. It swirled from the sky and whisked around us like a comforting hug, like it knew we were all in pain. As the water sloshed at our feet and we lowered Pauline in, I wondered about what better place she would end up. Not out of fear, not out of loss, but out of pure curiosity. Because I knew old Crimsey had saved us from suffocating on the nerve gases of chemical warfare, it would save Pauline from the rigors of cancer. When the time came, it took my Pauline our Pauline, somewhere beautiful, I believe that. She smiled at me as the water washed over her face. Carl leaned in right after she was gone and whispered, you know, people always talk about someone going to a better place when they die. This is the first time that I have ever believed that. Watching the crimson cloud disappear that night, whirling and swirling into the star-filled sky. I wished it would return on my day of death, on all of our days of death. 
So when the time came for whatever it was that followed, I could be with Pauline, with Thomas, with Carl, with Jenny and Marta. Because what is an afterlife worth if you can't spend it with the ones that made it so special to live in the first place? We ached for so long to explain that crimson cloud when we were kids. Once we realized what it was, what it could be, we knew we had never stopped to consider what was under it, hidden beneath that rippling water, the place where it could protect us, the place where we were always meant to be, and that is together. This week's episode was track scored, mixed, and mastered at the Great Divide Den. From me to you, thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again next week for another case of the Heebie Jeebies.